Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Today I'm excited because we are starting a brand new four-week series leading up to Easter Sunday called The Suffering Servant. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, and you know we spent the last year or so preaching through the book of Romans. We're officially halfway through that letter, but before we finish it up, we're going to take a break. And we're going to focus in this season on the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we do try to do that every week around here. We want the gospel to be the focus of every single sermon and service we have. But in this series in particular, we're going to look at this in kind of a unique way. Rather than looking at one of the four gospels, which is where we typically go this time of year and focus around Easter time, we're going to step back about 700 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. And we're going to look at what I believe is one of the single most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Any Old Testament fans out there? Anybody just love, ooh, yeah, get excited about the Old Testament? Okay. It's very important that we know and study the Old Testament. One of the things we often fail to see is that connection, that vital connection between the Old and New Testaments. Jesus did not step onto the scene of history at random. His birth in Bethlehem was not a coincidence. No, everything about Jesus was a part of a plan that God set in place before he even created the world. God's plan was to save people, sinful people like me, and bring us into a relationship with him that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever. God's plan was salvation, and every page, every verse, every word of the Bible points us to that gospel But the Testaments point in different directions. The Old Testament points forward to the coming of Jesus, while the New Testament points backward to the coming of Jesus. And in this way, every part of the Bible is about Jesus. He's the center. It's all one big story of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves. So this means it's very important that we read the Old Testament with our Jesus glasses on. Did you bring your Jesus glasses today? Did you put them on yet? Wow, that was really good. Miss Terry put her glasses on. That was good. we got to have our Jesus glasses on. We can't read the Old Testament like Jewish people or like people who don't believe in Christ. We can't read it like a children's book of good morals. If we want to accurately understand the Old Testament, we've got to do it through the lens of Jesus. These first 39 books of the Bible, they point our eyes ahead to the coming of a Savior named Jesus, and this happens in many ways. Most explicit way we see is through something called prophecy. When we hear the word prophecy, we tend to think of the prediction of a future event, and that's certainly a part of it. But prophecy in the Bible is simply a message from God. So what we see in much of the Old Testament is this group of people called the prophets who receive messages from God to give to God's people. Sometimes those messages were bad. They were all about God's judgment on their sin. Sometimes they were good. They were all about God's love and salvation for his people. Usually they were a mixture of both. But what the prophets did was point people forward to the God's coming salvation through Jesus. And the clearest example of this prophetic message about Jesus is the one we're going to be studying the next four weeks. We are going to spend four weeks on 15 verses. And these 15 verses contain 
the clearest explanation of the gospel and the work of Jesus, I believe, from the entire Old Testament. The verses I'm talking about are found in the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. This passage has come to be called the Song of the Suffering Servant. We'll see why in a minute. But it's important for us to know this passage is really more of a poem. It's a prophetic poem about God, is about how God is going to save and redeem his people through the future coming of a Savior. And it is no exaggeration when I tell you that this is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible for you to know. It was written 700 years before Jesus. And yet these words accurately predict in an incredible way the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The scholars throughout history have called it the fifth gospel alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Martin Luther said that every Christian should know these words by heart. This poem is so important that it actually became the language for the New Testament authors to explain Jesus and his ministry. These verses from Isaiah are referenced in these New Testament books. Listen to this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. Even Jesus himself referenced this prophecy of Isaiah to describe himself. That's how important this passage is. As I said, we're going to split this up into four weeks so we can wring out every drop of goodness. And in today's section, we're going to focus on the first six verses. So let's walk through this passage line by line. We'll come in at the end and apply it to our lives today. But let's begin by just reading it in its entirety. Would you please stand with me this morning? As we honor the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief." And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Let's go back to that very first word. Did you see it? What does it say? What's that word? Behold. The word behold means look. Look. Don't miss it. Whenever you see that word behold in the Bible, it's significant. Isaiah's prophecy is calling us to see something. And what is that something? He says, behold, my servant. Isaiah is speaking a prophetic word from God. So that my does refer to God. God's saying this is his servant. But what is he talking about? What does he mean, a servant? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that's what the whole series is about. That's great. Isaiah is prophesying about this character that he calls the servant. And this is not the first time in his book that he's mentioned this servant. So let's step back for a minute. Let's get the whole picture. 
We're jumping into the middle of the book. If you remember last week, I said we got to be careful with that. We need to make sure we get the context of what's going on. We've already said here that Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Israel, and he prophesied during a time period that was not good. The people had broken God's covenant, and they'd sinned against him over and over again. God kept giving them chances to repent and turn back, but things just got worse. So Isaiah was given the tough job of telling the people of Israel or the people of Jerusalem that they're going to be destroyed, taken over, and carried off into exile as prisoners. That's a pretty tough message to be telling your fellow citizens and neighbors. Can you imagine? Okay, hey guys, uh, I just need to let you know that uh, here soon, because you're all such terrible, rotten sinners, each and every one of you is going to either be killed or carried off and to be taken prisoner. Have a great week. (laughs) That was it. And Isaiah was not a very popular fellow, as you can imagine. But all along, in the midst of the bad news, he has this message of hope. Yes, they'll be judged. Yes, they'll be taken into exile. But God is going to make things right. He's going to rescue them. And Isaiah points the people to that hope all along. And one of the ways he does this is by prophesying about this character he calls the servant of the Lord. The servant is this this mysterious figure of hope. He's going to come. He's going to do what Israel couldn't do for themselves. He's going to bring people out of exile. He's going to fix their relationship with God. He's going to be a light to the world. That's Isaiah's servant of the Lord. There are four of these servant poems. The one we're looking at is the fourth one, the most well-known one. So look with me again at the rest of verse 14. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Another translation for that phrase, act wisely, is prosper. In other words, this servant's going to be successful. He's going to do and accomplish what God called him to do. And because of that, he's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. And that phrase, high and lifted up, that's a really big deal in the context of this book. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah actually received a vision of God. He got to see the throne room of God. Here's how he described it. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Here it is, high and lifted up. See that connection? He's describing this servant with the same language. He described God. So that's the plan here. This this servant figure is going to be exalted to the place of God. He'll be given this place of high honor and glory just like the creator of the universe. And based on what we see all throughout the Old Testament, this really fits in the story. Because one of the major prophetic themes we see in the Old Testament is prophecy concerning this future figure, this future Savior called the Messiah. The Messiah is the hero of the Bible. He's the Savior that's going to come and rule on David's throne and make all things right. And the Israelite people, they would have immediately heard that. And they would have realized that Isaiah was talking here about the same Messiah that they've heard about all their lives. So if the servant is the Messiah, of course he's going to be exalted. Of course he's going to be a big deal. We're going to make him king. And he's going to lead our nation. And he's going to defeat our enemies. I mean, this first verse in this poem fits perfectly in line with the Israelite expectations. But then comes the big twist. Here's the part no one saw coming, even though Isaiah laid it out. How is God going to exalt his servant? He's not going to do it in the typical way you might think. Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. We now see people are going to be astonished at the servant. There's going to be something shocking, something surprising about him. And don't get out of sorts about that second person you. That's a feature of Hebrew poetry to change tenses and emphasize different things. He's still talking about the servant. But what is it that will astonish and shock people? He says his appearance will be marred. Another way to translate that word is disfigured. We start to get the idea here, we're going to see clearly in the rest of this poem, that the servant is going to suffer. He's going to suffer so much to the point that he will not even look human. He will be so badly hurt and damaged that people will be shocked. They will step back in horror and say, is that that even a man? Let's not miss how strange these two verses are together. First, we find out this servant is on the same level of God. He's high and exalted, just like God is. But he's also going to be shockingly hurt to the point where he's unrecognizable. That's strange. It's mysterious. And yes, we see the full picture, but don't miss how bizarre this is. Let's keep going. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now we're back to the good part of the servant. Even though he's going to suffer and be marred in some way, he's going to sprinkle the nations. That word sprinkle would have been really triggering in the mind of the Israelites because they would have thought about the role of the priest. Remember the priest? He would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifices on the altar on the people. So we see the servant is going to do that, not just to God's people, but he's going to sprinkle the nations. In fact, kings are going to shut their mouths. And we know kings don't often shut their mouths. Because they're going to be shocked at what's going on. They're going to see and understand things they've never seen before in history. So again, we have the servant of the Lord. He's on the level of God. He's exalted, and yet he's going to be shockingly marred. And somehow, some way, this is going to impact many nations of people, not just one group, not just one part of the globe, but the whole world. Are you tracking with me? If you're with me, say, I am. Let's continue in verse 53.1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are rhetorical questions. They're meant to point us to the idea that not many people are going to believe in this servant. He's basically saying, why why would you believe this message? This is nonsense. This is shocking. No one's going to buy this. And we know that's what happened. In fact, in John chapter 12, the disciple John quotes this very verse from Isaiah. And he says that although people saw Jesus perform many miracles right up close in person, they still did not believe. This is especially amazing because as he prophesied, he was the arm of the Lord revealed. Now, that is a poetic term. We know that God does not actually have arms like we do. He's not a human being. He's a spiritual being. So whenever the Bible uses human imagery to describe God, it's to teach us something about his character. For example, the eyes of the Lord speak about God's knowledge. So what do you think his arm would be referencing? That would be his power, right? His ability to save. And Isaiah has talked several times in his book about the arm of the Lord coming and saving people. And now he tells us this servant is not going to be upheld by the arm of the Lord or, or be strengthened by the arm of the Lord. No, he says he is the arm of the Lord. 
This servant is himself the power and strength of God's salvation to people. And how will this servant be revealed? That's what we see in verse 2 of 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Even though the servant would be the arm of the Lord, here's why people would struggle to believe. He grew up like a normal human being, like a young plant. It's one of the meanings of this plant imagery. Isaiah is telling us that this servant will not come in strength and power. Notice he's not a mighty oak tree. Rather, he's going to come as a young plant. This reminds us of the humble way that Christ came into the world at Bethlehem. But there's another meaning here we might miss if we're not familiar with Isaiah's prophecies. Earlier in the book, Isaiah prophesies that after God's judgment on Israel, there's going to be a burned stump. And out of that stump is going to come a shoot. In other words, there's going to be something new. Some new life is going to spring out of the ashes of destruction. And here we see, he tells us, that's the servant. He's going to be like a root from dry ground. However, there's another reason that people will struggle to believe in the servant. It's the way he will look and present himself. He's not going to look like this great, big, mighty king and savior. It says he will have no beauty. Now, does this mean that Jesus was ugly? (laughs) Is that even a sin to say? I don't know. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think this speaks to his level of physical attractiveness. What this tells us is that Jesus was average in appearance. There was nothing special or unique about him that would have caused people to look and say, oh, that guy is something. This kind of flies in the face of a lot of the pictures we see today of Jesus, doesn't it? He's often portrayed as tall and chiseled and with long flowing locks of hair like a shampoo commercial and a nice smooth face. He's got this big beautiful beard. That part's accurate. He did have the good beard. But the reality is that Jesus, by all accounts, looked like every other first century Jewish man. Average height, average build, olive skin, dark hair, Dark eyes, probably a bit rugged, knowing what he did for a living. Not dressed real nice or clean cut. He grew up in poverty in a small, obscure town. So again, we see this tension, this this mystery, an exalted servant of the Lord. He's high and lifted up. He's on the level of God. He's the arm of the Lord revealed to us. And yet he grows up as an ordinary, average, unspectacular, poor Jewish boy. But the story gets even stranger from here. People didn't just not believe in him. They didn't just ignore him and look the other way. No, he was actively hated. Look at this last verse of today's section, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This servant, this great coming Savior, the Messiah, will be despised and rejected. People will not like him. He will experience so much suffering in his life that he'll be called a man of sorrows. Another way to translate that word sorrows is pains. He's going to experience all sorts of difficulty and hurt and grief. He'll feel all the weight of humanity's brokenness. And the result, people will hide their faces from him. When he comes down the street, people will look the other way. They'll be disgusted with him. 
They will shun him from society. They will esteem him not, which means they will not acknowledge who he really is. You feel the strangeness of this poem so far? Imagine hearing this prophecy in Isaiah's day, trying to make sense of this and think, you know, how is this going to work and what would this look like and how this, will this play out? Here's the thing and here's the beautiful privilege we have today. We know how it played out. We know who the servant of the Lord is. We can clearly see that Isaiah is speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. And he was describing the life that he would live on this earth. So in light of this text this morning, I want to focus for a moment on the life of Jesus. In the coming weeks, we're going to get to his death and his burial and his resurrection. But let's pause. And let me give you three ways we can respond to the life of Jesus. Here's the first. Number one, see the life of the suffering servant. If we want to fully understand who Jesus is and what, is, what he's done, we cannot just look at his death and his resurrection, but we must also look at his life. As Isaiah showed us, Jesus' life was an important part of God's plan of salvation. Yes, he was going to be exalted and honored and praised, but first he was going to be humiliated. I want you to understand that if you claim to follow Jesus, you are following a first century Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. A man who was born to parents so poor and forgotten they laid him in a feeding trough. A man who the government tried to kill from the time when he was a baby who had to flee to another nation for safety. A man who grew up in a small town in obscurity for the first 30 years of his life. No one wrote anything about him. A man who spent his time with the lowest rungs of society, prostitutes, tax collectors, and lepers. A man who was rejected by the religious elites of his day, including the religious leaders. A man who said he had no place to lay his head. A man whose own family thought he was crazy. A man who was run out of his own hometown. A man who was laughed at, mocked, hated. A man who was single, childless, and abandoned by his closest friends in his hour of need. A man who felt the deepest levels of grief and pain. A man of sorrows. A man who was labeled a criminal, an enemy of the state, and, a and called a spawn of Satan. Is that your Jesus? Do you see the life he lived? It was not a life of fame and fortune and comfort, relaxation and ease. It was a life of rejection and suffering. And yet Isaiah shows us this was no tragedy. This was no horrible mistake. This was the predetermined plan of God. Was Jesus surprised when people didn't like him? Was he shocked when he opened his eyes to find himself laying in a manger instead of a palace? No. That's what he signed up for. He knew the assignment the Father had given him, and he readily took it on. He knew the prophecy that Isaiah had written, and he gladly fulfilled it. Because this was the way. This was the plan of salvation. Jesus came from womb to tomb to suffer. To bear our sorrows and our pain, to experience the full weight of humanity, the curse, the brokenness. He felt all of it on himself so that he could represent us, so that he could be our Savior. Friends, listen to me. This means that Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows every pain, not just in the sense like he knows about it, but no, he knows it personally because he's felt it. He's not distant and cold-hearted to it. No, he's there right in the midst of it. 
He was truly the man of sorrows. Let's see the life of the suffering servant. That's first. Here's second. Number two, follow the life of the suffering servant. If Jesus lived this kind of life, then why would we expect anything different as his disciples? How can we say, I follow Jesus, but I want to live for riches and fame and success and be loved by all and have a nice, easy life? Listen to this verse in 1 John 2, 6. John wrote this. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Following Jesus means walking as he walked, living as he lived. That means, yeah, we're going to suffer. We're going to experience difficulty. We will be rejected and despised as he was. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 22, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus warned us, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Famous pastor and author Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he explained this really well. Listen to what he wrote. He said, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Listen to this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man, at his call. Is that what you signed up for? When you were baptized, were you baptized to die with Jesus? To take up your cross and suffer with him? If not, turn back now. It's only going to get worse from here. This is the path to life and salvation. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Follow the life of the suffering servant. Here's the third and last takeaway. Number three, share the life of the suffering servant. To know Jesus is to follow him. And to follow him is to share him with other people. He made that clear when he said the very first thing to his disciples. He said, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was a part of the the call. Our mission is to share the life of Jesus with others. And we do that in two ways primarily. First, we do that by living like Jesus. We literally share his life by living out his life in front of others. This means work in the way that Jesus would work if he worked at your job. Be the neighbor that Jesus would be if he lived in your neighborhood. Be the spouse that Jesus would be if he were in your marriage. Serve people and speak to people and love people that Jesus would love if he lived your life. Because here's the key. Christ is in you living your life. So we share Jesus by living like him. But we also got to open our mouth and tell people about him. We have a message to share. That there is someone who understands all the pain and suffering of this world because he felt it and he died for it. 
There is a man of sorrows who experienced rejection that you might find acceptance. Who experienced pain that you might be healed. Who knew grief that you might experience joy. Jesus lived and died that we might have life, real life, eternal life. That's what the world needs to hear. That's the message we're called to share. No, it's not always daisies and roses. No, this isn't a get-quick-rich scheme. There is suffering. There is pain. Following Jesus is not the easy way. But it is the way to life. It is the way to purpose. Remember what Jesus said? The road to destruction is wide and many people take it. But the path to life is narrow and few find it. We follow the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Will you join us? Will you see him? Will you follow him? And then will you share him with the world? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.